Welcome to episode 236 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Today, I'm joined by our, our guest interviewee, is, uh, who's Chris Krebs, who's currently the Undersecretary for the National Protection and Programs Directorate, but will soon be the Undersecretary uh, of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, uh, uh, CISA, um, which is a better name and a more accurate name uh, for his responsibilities at the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, also for the uh, news Roundup. Uh, we've got Maury Shank, who was formerly managing partner of our London office uh, uh, and now advises Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues. And Jamil Jaffer, uh, founder of the National Security Institute and an adjunct professor at George Mason University. I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. Maury, I'd like to kick this off uh, uh, by uh, um, uh, pulling in what is clearly the story of the week and giving it a cyber connection. Uh, uh, the killing of uh, Mr. Khashoggi in the uh, Saudi embassy in Istanbul uh, has brought to light a whole bunch of people defending the Saudi government very aggressively on Twitter and has led Twitter to take down a bunch of bots uh, that uh, uh, it said it had been watching for a while and would just you know, was slowly taking down. Uh, I, I have my doubts about that, but uh, uh, they clearly have responded to the defense of uh, uh, the crown prince by taking down a bunch of these accounts. Um, and the New York Times has written a story about the uh, existence of what amounts to a troll farm in Saudi Arabia of young Saudis who've been paid to uh, defend the regime. Uh, um, any surprises in here? No, I, I don't think there are surprises. I, I have a lot of friends who are involved in the region and MBS, as he's called, has done a very good job of public relations, including with our president convincing some people that he's a reformer, but is widely viewed by, you know, as, as quite a repressive character. And these tactics of hiring at not bad pay at all individuals to troll Khashoggi and the like on Twitter and presumably elsewhere is consistent with the behavior of that kind of regime. I just think that and, and presumably it could have been known before, but just the huge amount of light that is being shown on this as a result of the killing of Khashoggi at the Turkish at the embassy in Turkey is um, is leading to some greater attention to this. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, this, this is this is a regime that traditionally said, look, there's enough money to buy off everybody in Saudi Arabia who matters. Uh, let's just spread the wealth around and then we can take it away if they don't toe the line. And that ought to be enough. Uh, and for whatever reason, maybe there's not enough uh, money to go around. Uh, uh, maybe he's just of a different generation. Uh, uh, MBS has reached for some of the standard authoritarian tools. And it now turns out uh, that, yeah, one of the standard authoritarian authoritarian tools is Twitter uh, troll armies. Yeah. I mean, the, the Chinese, as we've discussed on this podcast before, maybe not just on Twitter, but on Chinese and other social media are really good at this as well. Um, we know the Russians do it. Um, it's uh it's a pretty common tool. Yeah, and this does this does feel a little more Chinese than Russian in the sense that uh, uh, the people are being paid to um, repeat a government line to defend the government and and maybe to attack regime enemies, uh, but they don't seem to be maybe there's not enough of them into the idea of just nuking the whole uh, area of discourse with uh, uh, random uh, uh, trolling. Uh, it's a little bit more um, focused on trying to make sure that the discussion stays within the bounds that the government wants it to stay within. Yeah, I sort of see it as somewhere between Chinese and Russian. I mean, we, we did that. We had that discussion of the Chinese 50 cent army, and a lot of them are just spouting positive propaganda about China. I agree with you. This is not quite up to the level of Russian blanket disinformatia, but it's, um, you know, the, the New York Times story talked about a lot of very targeted and aggressive trolling of Khashoggi himself, which sounded 
somewhat more like the Russians. And Khashoggi was trying to organize a kind of counter uh, army, uh, a troll army in the West that would uh, attack the troll army inside Saudi Arabia. Uh, so one more thing that uh, got under MBS's skin. Uh, all right. Um, so speaking of controlling the Internet, uh, the uh, EU uh, is – as we all know, pursuing massive and endless uh, uh, competition cases against Google. They've really decided Google is the enemy and Google uh, um, is evil um, in a way that they haven't since they decided that Microsoft was evil. Um, And they've got multiple cases pending against Google and um, relief against uh, uh, Google. Google just announced that they were going to start charging people who wanted to use the Android uh, operating uh, service. Uh, and that one struck me as particularly weird as, a, as a, an outcome from a competition case. I, I, you've probably followed this closely, but there's, a, there, there's an argument here that I'm seeing in the press that um, what Europe is trying to do or what the, the logical outcome of what Europe's doing is to recreate inside Europe the – um, I, I won't call it an ecosystem, but the, the the vast urban slum that is Android in China. Well, I think you're right, Stuart, that this is pretty unlikely to be good for the Android ecosystem. But before we talk about that, this weird result, the reason for it is that the European Commission fined Google about $5 billion in July for bundling Android with other applications. And Google is appealing that fine. Well, they so, had to, this is the this is the case where they had to stand on their head to say uh, Apple is not competing with Android uh, because Apple doesn't license the iOS. So uh, we want to look at the, the markets where uh, the operating system is licensed, and that oh, what do you know? That turns out to be just Android. Yep. So uh, it was a stretch. I agree with you that it's somewhat politically motivated or a- anti. Uh, anti-American, perhaps, towards Google. Um, So Google is appealing, and rather than, you know, negotiating with the commission some looking forward approach, this is their, I think, finger-in-the-eye approach or uh, to the commission as a potential way forward, where they've said, no, okay, we will license all our Google apps besides search and, and mobile, where we make ad revenue, for up to forty, uh, up to forty euros a phone, although uh, marked down for high res phones and marked down significantly if you take Google's search and mobile apps. But it's a very complicated deal, and I, I think they're just trying to show the Commission how messy uh, the logic uh, okay. Commission's fine is. That, that's my guess. So this is Do a- something. This arguably is, compliant, but show them it's messy. This is not unlike their decision to say, okay, you want us to pay you for uh, using snippets of your news stories in Google search? How about we don't use them? How would you like that? And, uh, of course, nobody liked that, uh, at least none of the people who brought the lawsuit. So maybe that is um, uh, Google saying, uh, you know, this could get really ugly and uh, we've got uh, – more ways to screw up the ecosystem than you can really tolerate. Fascinating. Okay. Jamil, uh, I, the, the Intercept has sent, has now sent another, uh, government employee to, uh, to prison, uh, by publishing their leaks. Uh, uh what's the story there? Well, Stuart, this is the case of, uh, Terry Albury, um, who had been a Minnesota FBI agent since 2001. Um, you know, Mr. Albury had uh, taken, uh, at least what he's planned to, is taking 25 documents, uh, giving them to the Intercept, 16 of which uh, were classified. Apparently, the FBI found up to 70 documents on a thumb drive in his house, uh, 50 of which were classified. Um, so obviously, you know, you can't take classified material and give it to the Intercept. Um, even if you are, as Mr. Albury claimed, a whistleblower concerned about racial and religious, racial and religious prejudice at the uh, Minnesota FBI he was concerned about prejudice against Somali refugees and Iraqi refugees uh, there in the Minnesota Twin Cities area. Um, but at the end of the day, there are protections for whistleblowers in our laws. Um, and, uh, and you know, for those whistleblowers out there who want to take advantage of those, that involves going to your inspector generals. It involves going to your uh, House and Senate intelligence committees. 
it doesn't involve taking classified materials and giving them to intercept, that will send you to jail, uh, like Mr. Albury, who's got four years. And uh, like Reality Winner, who got five. Uh, I, I did suggest uh, lightheartedly on uh, uh, Twitter that the, uh, maybe the intercept could borrow the uh, uh, the McDonald's, the old McDonald's uh, 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 motto, uh, billions and billions served. Well, there's at least, you know, 10 years uh, now will be served by people who uh, uh, were foolish enough to give their stuff to the intercept. Uh, the, the thing I was fascinated by is uh, Albury really used a remarkable amount of tradecraft here. He uh, called stuff up on his screen and then took pictures of the screen. Uh, he used uh, uh, encrypted apps to send the stuff, and he still got caught. I, I suspect it's because the intercept stories are so long and have so much detail that nobody actually wants to read other than the people who are trying to find the leak, uh, that they included some information that allowed the FBI to narrow this down. That was exactly right, and uh, you know, obviously, that that kind of uh, that kind of tradecraft demonstrates sort of a, a knowing, uh, knowing behavior. Yeah, that's right. It 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 made it much harder for him to say, "I'm just an innocent uh, whistleblower." Um, so uh, the other story that I thought was really interesting uh, uh, this week was the Securities and Exchange Commission, which flagged. Email fraud, which is kind of CEO fraud, where you, uh, you you pretend to be the CEO and you tell the CFO to pay some uh, um, uh, invoices, or you pretend to be a supplier and you substitute your invoices and your payment instructions for the real supplier's uh, invoices and payment instructions. Uh, and uh, the SEC said nine firms cost a hundred, lost a hundred million dollars uh, for this, uh, um, and. There could be regulatory implications, Jamil. Certainly true. I mean, you know, obviously, um, the uh, the overall scope of this business email compromise problem almost five billion dollars uh, since 2013. So a huge amount of uh, you know capital and money being sucked out of the U.S. economy by these type of compromises. Um, and the SEC sort of putting people on notice, saying, "Look, uh, while we may not have gone after these companies here, um, it's something you need to think about in terms of having the right internal accounting practices." so that these type of things aren't taken advantage of to extract money from your companies, and we're going to be policing this. And so, uh, you know, this is an increasing area of concern for companies that the SEC, the uh, variety of regulatory agencies might get into uh, a, a more regulatory, more aggressive mode when it comes to cybersecurity protections. Uh, so something to, definitely for businesses to watch out for. Yeah, so the books and records requirements of the uh, SEC could end up biting people and, and re-victimizing them after they've paid out this these funds. Uh, it does suggest that uh, in the long run, um, there going, there's going to be cybersecurity elements to uh, most people's payment uh, uh, chains of approval. Uh, all right, Maury, I... There was a very interesting story about um, China's tech boom, uh, uh, I think, in the Wall Street Journal, uh, suggesting it looked a lot like a bubble. Uh, but the part I was interested in was just how much money from VCs in the United States was suddenly pouring into Chinese tech startups. Yeah, I mean, there's this is one of those amazing Chinese growth stories where Chinese venture capital investment is roughly on par with U.S. venture capital investment now, which is stunning. You know, 10 years ago, I would have been a, more than an order of magnitude smaller, certainly. Um, and there's a lot of tech development. I mean, the world's most valuable private company now is ByteDance. It's a Chinese company. It's worth more than Uber. Um, particularly, uh, some areas do very well in China. A lot of the best AI face recognition companies because of the Chinese surveillance state are in China and these companies are making real money. So, and there's a huge Chinese government policy to support tech, much more industrial policy than the in the U.S. Um, I know investors who are going into this market, and a lot of money's a lot of money is being made. Yes, it may be a bubble. Valuations are crazy, um, but there's real business there as well. Yeah, I th I think there there is a lot of uh, uh, opportunity there. What I'm struck by is. Um, there was a lot of Chinese money going into Silicon Valley. I think a lot of that is drying up because the U.S. has basically said we don't trust this money. Uh, and 
The VCs have responded to that by saying, well, if we can't get VC, if we can't get Chinese VC money here, then we'll take advantage of it by going and investing in companies that the Chinese VCs are supporting in China. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that's right. I think people see, well, I think there are questions about the Chinese economy at the moment, but that China is seen as a more hospitable environment for tech business. Uh, at least globally open tech business than the U.S. at the moment, which is which is stunning. Yeah, that's that that's a surprise. Uh, uh, <clears throat> all right, well, we're going to finish up uh, with a, a few quick hits. Uh, and uh, Maury, since I know you're uh, uh, running out of time, uh, I do want to ask you about the story from uh, uh, Germany and Austria. Um, it's a long tradition in Germany that, of course, you know, uh, it, it is only uh, orderly to have your name uh, next to your doorbell in your apartment building. Um, and uh, somebody in Vienna said, well, wait a minute, isn't that a violation of privacy? Uh, and the Viennese privacy, uh, the, the, the Vienna privacy officer said, yes, it's a violation of privacy law, uh, data protection law. Uh, which really bothered the Germans because uh, they they were sure that couldn't possibly be right. Um, and even though they are maximalists on data protection, they are also enthusiasts for keeping names on uh, doorbells. So the um, data protection authorities in Germany have now said, oh, no, no, it's not a violation of our data protection law. I frankly didn't understand the, the, the rationale. I thought they, the, they, they sounded quite unpersuasive when they said that. No, there's a good reason why this isn't covered by GDPR, which is GDPR only applies to electronic processing and processing in a filing system. And a name on a doorbell is really neither of those. I think there's a very strong argument that the GDPR has nothing to do with this. Okay, I, I'll, uh, I'll buy that, although what that means is that if you had an electronic system where people's names were displayed uh, uh, electronically rather than so that you could change it as people moved in and out, that that would be a violation. Yeah, I think there would be a much stronger argument there, although, as we tell our clients a lot, consent is not the only basis for processing under GDPR. There is legitimate interests, although I suppose if you live in a privacy protective country like Germany or Austria, maybe there, you know, there wouldn't be seen to be a legitimate interest in saying who lives in a building. They want their secrecy. All right. Um, so the ABA has come out with guidance on what the ethical obligation of lawyers uh, might be in the event of a breach disclosure. Uh, I, and uh, uh, it's actually, you know, this is more or less the second or third time the ABA has looked at uh, cybersecurity and uh, ethical standards. But it's a pretty good analysis. It basically says, look, law, law firms have an, lawyers have an obligation to keep their um, clients abreast of any developments in their case and having their uh, uh, confidential data breached is a development in their case that they're entitled to know about. Uh, um, uh, and so um, the rather detailed discussion of data breach is worth looking at for anybody who's listening to this because they're interested in both cyber and law. Good chance you're a lawyer. Good chance you're subject to the uh, ethical obligations of the profession. And there's a good chance that the ABA's analysis is going to be adopted by most of the ethics uh, um, enforcers uh, around the country. And and just to bring everybody up to date, you remember we talked about the Equifax insider trading case where the Equifax asked a guy to design a uh, breach notification site but didn't tell them that uh, the, the, their worker that uh, it was for Equifax and he just figured it out and decided since they hadn't told him, he didn't have insider information and he could trade on it. And uh, that turned out to be wrong because his job assignment was also insider information. He has now been sentenced to eight months of home confinement and has paid a fine, which means he's basically going to be out twice the amount that he uh, gained from his uh, uh, trading, which sounds like a pretty uh, reasonable and, and relatively lenient uh, uh, outcome for somebody who was mostly stupid as opposed to venal. And that is uh, our uh, news roundup for the day. Uh, we're going to turn now to uh, Undersecretary Chris Krebs. 
All right. Our guest interviewee today is Chris Krebs, uh, who's the undersecretary, currently the undersecretary for the National Protection and Programs Directorate and soon to be director of the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Protection Agency, a much better name uh, uh, at the Department of Homeland Security. Well, Chris, welcome. Thanks, Stuart. So uh, the topic that we have been promising people will talk about is election security. The election yes. is practically upon us two weeks away, roughly. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, there are a lot of ways in which uh, the Russians could have and in some cases did manipulate the election in 2016. Um, how many of them are we better prepared for today? Well, I, let, let me start by saying this. The, the best defense against the Russian offense here is vote early. Okay. So if you can vote now, today, whether absentee or in place uh, early voting, uh, that gives us a better opportunity to detect irregularities. Plus, you, you're able to get in before anything. If anything bad happens, you're able to get in the, before that time. So. Vote early. Know what your rights are as a voter. Make sure you know where you're registered. Uh, make sure you know you're registered and uh, the voting precinct uh, and then know the voter ID requirements, if any, and also um, the uh, the provisional ballot laws as it relates to that to the state where you're, you're uh, and there. The, 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 the thought is that if there is some sort of problem with voting on Election yeah. Day, uh, people need to be prepared to say, OK, I can't vote. I want to vote. I want a provisional ballot. Yeah. I want to submit it so that it gets counted once this is all sorted out. Yeah, and and it's important to note that that there are glitches and technical irregularities that happen in every election. Sure. I mean, there are. Let's be clear here, right? There are IT systems supporting this, and IT systems are not infallible. So, um, it, just this this past primary season. In Maryland, there was a snafu between the uh, DMV and the State Board of Elections. There wasn't a transfer of voter registration when people sign up for new uh, uh, driver's licenses. That information didn't go over to the, the Board of Elections. So folks showed, showed up with up their driver's and, license and said, I can vote, and they couldn't. Yep. Uh, and they had, you know, in their view, they'd done everything right. 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 Uh, so what's the process here? Well, first and foremost, uh, the election officials have uh, good crisis communications plans in place. They identify the problem. They identify the root problem. They identify the solution. And then they communicate to the voting public. The solution here was show up to vote anyway and you'll get a provisional ballot. Uh, we'll verify everything on the back end and then that ballot will be counted as cast. Same thing happened in L.A. County. There was a glitch there earlier this year as well. So these things get caught. Um you know, from a threat model of what the a Russian or other actor might do, what what we're seeing is actually it would probably be something like what happened in 2016 when the Russians had access to the Illinois uh, voter registration database. Had they manipulated the data to change the the poll books or the the actual uh, database, and someone in Illinois had showed up to vote and their information was deleted, then they again, would have done a provisional just ballot. ask for provisional ballot. Boom. Yeah. So they, it's a measure that, of resilience in yes. the system. It, yeah. And it makes sense that if, if you just do that, yeah. uh, all it will do is delay the uh, final counting of the return. Some. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, which brings me to the next thing that I think the average voter, uh, the, the American voter needs to be aware of is that uh, election night reporting. Unofficial results. Yes. You know, it's a good indicator but it's it's not the truth. It, you know, it's not official results. And in fact, certification takes time, weeks even. There yeah. has to be a canvas. In some states, they audit. Uh, so, uh, you know, don't necessarily uh, live or die by the unofficial election. Night well, we all remember Al Gore actually conceded uh, uh, improperly because right. it turned out that things were closer. And it, my memory is that in um, uh, 2004, there was a lot of belief that John Kerry had had actually won. Mm. I, it never got communicated to right. the public, but a lot of the commentators were sure that he had it won using those early returns. Right. Uh, so, yes, it's it's easy to get it wrong. Um, and uh, I, the New York Times famously said that uh, um, uh, Hillary Clinton had a 97 percent chance of being uh, uh, the president. Uh, uh, so 
we we have systems in place before we started worrying about this mm-hmm. provisional ballots yeah. for uh, the hacking of the voter rolls. Right. Um, is there any sign that there's that that is uh, being attempted? So in 2016, by this point, by uh, mid to late October 2016, we had very good intelligence on what the Russians were planning, what they were doing. You know, by this point, we already knew what was going on in Illinois. We were able to take the indicators out of Illinois and share it across other states. And we saw other communications and targeting, scanning. Uh, but they, did, they, never, they were never actually carried anything out in Illinois. So Illinois, what they did was they went in and they exfiltrated voter registration uh, files. They didn't manipulate. They didn't, They you know, the, the other piece to be very, very clear about is they did not have, we, had, we don't have the evidence or any evidence that they had access to vote tal, uh, tabulation machines. The actual, right. uh, that's the real sensitive stuff. Uh, and we, we didn't see it then. We haven't seen anything since then right. of access to the, those, uh, those So machines. it's quite possible that they did not intend ever to screw with the Illinois. I think there's some speculation here for sure that, that look, if, if, if you back up and you look at what the overarching Russian objectives are, um, and this is not an intelligence community assessment per se, but uh, I, I think that it's it's it would be safe to say that really they're just trying to get in our heads. They're trying to undermine yes. our confidence in the system itself. Uh, actually getting in and changing a vote, it, it's actually hard. Right. It doesn't scale well. It's really costly. And the risks are pretty darn high if they do it and they get caught. Um, the specter of being able to do this and mess with the equipment and then getting on social media and saying, aha, right. we were in the systems and you don't know what we were doing, do you? Yeah. That is the risk, I think. And so this goes back to um, kind of the, the top of the show. Get out and vote. Yeah. You know, that is the best way to push back on these Russian efforts to get in our heads. It's vote. Don't let them uh, discourage you from voting. Right. Uh, so uh, that makes sense. And I agree with you. It's kind of getting in our heads and to get in our heads, they have more or less have to admit they did it, which they've been doing a lot of advertently and inadvertently right. lately. Uh, um, so the other kinds of things that the Russians did in 2016, they hacked a lot of campaign right. uh, uh, and uh, individuals and then released the information so that it would have an impact on the campaign. Uh, we certainly haven't seen any releases. Uh, right. you know, WikiLeaks and DC Leaks and Gucci Pertuo, right. they've all been silent, uh, uh, partly because there's no national campaign. Um, is there, a, what is the department able to do about preventing that kind of hacking? So again, you know, defense here and prevention is key. Uh, we've been working with the RNC and the DNC and the state level uh, party heads, party chairs on basic training, um, basic awareness uh, recommendations issued, partnered with the Belfer Center and pushed out uh, some campaign security checklists. But, you know, this is one of those things where we can give a list of 15 things that that campaigns that are on shoestring budgets just don't have the the right. talent, the wherewithal or the the cash to pay for it. So, um you know, we, what we've seen is a lot of uh, the cybersecurity companies and the IT companies offering free services, which I think is a great, a great move forward. But even just the basics of, you know, enable multi-factor authentication, just make it that much harder mm-hmm. for the bad guys to get in and get to that sensitive information. Uh, and that's probably priority step number one. Um, and, and just, you know, again, be mindful of what you're pushing around via email and use the Washington Post test, right? Right. Uh, how would you like to see this on the yeah. front page of right. the Washington Post? Uh, uh, although I, I continue to uh, love the Macron approach, which is put in some things that are shocking headline generators that you know you can disprove yeah. and wait for them to steal it and uh, and try to get you. Uh, uh, it's risky, but uh, it certainly worked for him. Yeah, it's a counter-counter uh, information operation, yeah. So uh, – Here's a question, I, not, not not in your area of expertise, but if I'm a, a security firm and I want to offer cybersecurity uh, capabilities to the campaigns, mm-hmm. is there a risk that that will be treated as an in-kind campaign contribution or have you addressed that? So we're, we're rapidly getting out of my uh, skill set and safe zone, very narrow as it is. Um, 
But so a couple companies have done this and they've asked for exceptions from the Federal Elections Commission. They've been granted okay. uh, those exceptions. So we're, we're seeing um, a recognition of the challenges here and that we can't play this game with two hands or one hand tied behind our back. And, uh, you know, this is 18, um, the midterms. I think 2020 is the, the big game, probably. Right. Uh, so as we as we kind of go through this process in advance and we do some after action reporting after uh, November 6th, we'll we'll find out how to probably streamline this process. The the companies will and the FEC will. And uh, my hope is once we get through that process, we can do a better coordination. Because one thing I am seeing with with a lot of these companies that are offering um, uh, free services is that the election officials downrange are being inundated and they can't really kind of contextualize this service vice that service what does it get him ah, yes. so we need a more coordinated almost holistic approach and but that's tough but if it's if it's free um and presumably not a lost leader free right um then then there's probably a better way we can do this and so we can use some of our coordinating mechanisms through uh dhs and the critical infrastructure partnerships uh i think to figure out what this suite yeah, of services I, mean, looks like. I would have thought that uh three quarters of it would be use gmail or hotmail and turn on two-factor authentication for your email accounts and you're you're at least 60 percent of the way there yeah uh for campaigns for sure but we're you know they're also you know ddos and ddos protection and mitigation right. i mean those are the kind of cheap uh threat models that we're, we're looking to overcome so um 2018 from uh your body language at least is not looking like it's going to be a debacle not even looking like it's going to be a repeat of 2016 i realize you're not i will never place. say that <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't expect you to um but let's assume that that's the case that it goes pretty well um do we treat 2018 as our opportunity to have a really good intramural game while preparing for uh, uh, the varsity game in 2020 so our uh, you know our baseline planning factor right now is kind of what the russians did in 16 how they were conducting spear phishing campaigns prolong you know trying to get access to voter registration databases things like that and and then we're looking okay if we know anything about the russians i've said this a bunch lately if we know anything about the Rus russians is when they come back they're always a little bit better or they're a little bit different so mm -hmm. so how would they improve or how would they they mix up their approach so even though we haven't seen anything right now we're still preparing as if they're coming back and thinking a little bit more creatively about okay we only have two weeks till game day what could they do in that two-week period right. to to mix things up and whether it's a, a very small-scale targeted technical attack on an election system somewhere uh, out there and then amplification through social media uh, that that's kind of where we're we're gaming it out um, trying to trying to get ahead of it so again we're just hitting right now really hard the um, the the best practices, password resets, you know, spear phishing awareness campaigns, you know, get, you know, heightened uh, level of awareness. Now, running up into 2020, I think that is for sure where you're, you know, because more is at stake. Right. Right. Um, we are going to also, given the, the presidential uh, race, probably see a uh, and the time to build up and learn more from Russian activities, look for more countries to probably join the game. Aren't we seeing some indication of Iranian interest uh, in this field? So Unless what we're on, maybe that's on social media rather than in actually doing the hacking. So that, you know, if you look at the uh, the intelligence community assessment, uh, January 2017, the, you know, it's it, there are a range of activities that the Russian uh, the Russians used. Uh, or, or uh, took up and, I, you know, there's the technical attacks against election um, election systems. There's the hack and leak that you talked about. And then there's just the broader information operations. And on that right side of the spectrum, the information operations, we see a whole range of uh, countries in the influence space. Right. And well, we just I, there Iran. was a story today about Saudi influence. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And look, I, I think this is just kind of the new normal in terms of how countries are using uh, information operations and using the the information economy almost uh, in, in militarizing it or weaponizing is probably the better way to put it. So we'll continue to see this um, 
sort of activity uh, going forward. And in the, in the, the really the question I think we have to ask is how do we harden or build the resilience of the American people to, to be able to withstand kind of yeah. this sort of stuff within the framework of the First Amendment and our you know privacy and civil liberties uh, principles. So that's the real hard thing right now that we're trying to work through. So I, I would have said when it comes to hacking the voter rolls or uh, hacking voting voting machines or even uh, uh, hack and leak mm-hmm. uh, that DHS pretty much has the lead. Uh, who has the lead on dealing with the resilience of the American people to these sorts of divisive, um, manipulative uh, Twitter and social media campaigns. So when you – on the information, the countering foreign interference, countering foreign information uh, bucket, I'll call mm-hmm. it, um, the FBI has lead for the mitigation and the disruption. In terms of the resilience building and awareness building, that's a DHS-FBI kind of shoulder-to-shoulder approach. Uh, FBI, uh, you know, we pushed out uh, the FBI took lead. We supported the Protected Voices campaign, which was mm-hmm. about how to uh, protect yourself, how to protect your campaigns. And then we're working through a number of um, public statements and other campaigns to increase awareness. And, you know, great example of um, the, 2000, the 2017 intelligence community assessment is just a goldmine of activity and information about what Russia's specifically but broader nation states might do. Look at look at kind of the static elements of uh, the ICA. And what I mean by static is the things that are day to day. They're always there. Mm-hmm. It's the same mouthpiece and specifically RT and Sputnik. Right. State sponsored media. They are the mouthpiece for the Kremlin. They're still there. Right. In fact, they're registered under FARA here. About so time. we need to call that, you know, we need to call it like we see it and say this is this the, is the Russian know, government line. Yeah. And it's in their charter. Right. It's in RT's charter that they will carry out the message of the Kremlin overseas. So that is part of this awareness campaign and, uh, it, you know, letting the American public know is if you see anything from Sputnik or RT, know where it's coming from. Right. Validate from another source. Uh, this is no different from the 70s and 80s in Pravda. It's right. the exact same thing, in fact. Yeah. So uh, it's it's more it's it's a reminder, I think, I think because we forgot maybe uh, that there are nation state peers and adversaries out there in the counterterrorism era. Well, plus the the line that they're pushing is very different yeah. uh, from, you know, the communist international that now it's a much more uh, nationalist uh, uh, line, which people didn't associate with the Soviets. Right. Uh, 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 but uh, and and so. No one has had to worry about uh, making sure that they aren't too close to the Kremlin line when they talk right. about, uh, right. you know, whether the United States should be part of uh, NAFTA or USMCA. Right. But, I mean, you made the point best, I think, earlier. They're trying to undermine our system, our system of government and our faith in our democracy. That is that's their objective. And we are at a disadvantage, or at least the government is, because uh, even RT has uh, First Amendment rights. Yep. Okay. So um, the uh, I, I said at the top of the show that you're going to get a new title. Uh, your lips to God's ears. It, yep. Uh, um, it, that's passed both houses, right? So it it passed the House in uh, last December, right? And then uh, went over to the Senate and passed out of the Senate two or three weeks ago. Right. Uh, but due to a small technical change, there was a savings clause introduced uh, okay. at the behest of uh, another committee. And uh, so it goes back over to the House. But from my understanding, the conversations are the, uh, that that we should be in good shape. Right. Um, and, and it's just a, just a, a better a quick finding a time and a place to get it through. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, the House comes back the week after uh, the midterms for four days uh-huh. or three even because uh-huh. Monday is Veterans Day. So they'll come back okay. on the 13th. And then the following week is Thanksgiving. So, uh, you know, clock's ticking. There there ain't much time left. Oh, here. dear. Well, it would be a shame. But, you know, but you, DHS has done very well over the last few years uh, implementing changes and then asking Congress to ratify them. 
Uh, that's the only legislation that DHS has gotten. I, and this is another thing where you'd say, well, we already do this. This is kind of yeah. what our job is. Why don't you just ratify it? And that is less controversial than asking for something new. Yeah. I, you know, this, this goes back to the, the good old days of DHS, you know, 10 years ago when after 2SR and mm-hmm. second stage review and some of those other things that you were uh, a key player in. Uh, that Congress, through the appropriations process, clamped down on the ability, the 872 yes, to do ability to do the own reorg. So I am in a unique position in that uh, we are in a unique position where all I'm asking for really is a is a name change. Right. In a streamlining of the organization. And that's it. We're not creating anything new here. It's it's elevating an existing set of authorities and organizational and appropriations and all that good stuff. We're not, you know, other departments have over the last year, stood up new, entirely new programs and right. then asked for congressional authority so, uh, or approval. So we're, uh, we, yeah, we're in, a, we're in a weird place, but we're trying to do this right. We're trying to do this through consensus building. The, uh, this goes back, you know, Undersecretary Beers back in the early years of the Obama administration really teed this up. Um, but I think just after, um, you know, a, a, a good campaign, I got to mm-hmm. admit that, that, you know, we we've hit this pretty hard. Um, and the you know, also the fact that industry really came on board this time. I think they understand those. Understand so the that is a, that is a difference. And, and uh, some of the credit goes to you. Uh, industry used to say DHS cybersecurity. Oh, no, I'm sorry. They can't do anything. I and you don't hear that anymore. I, or at least I, you don't hear it as much as you necessarily right. used to. But and, and the people you hear it from don't know that much. Uh, they're repeating stuff they heard ten years ago. Uh, I, it does seem to me that DHS um, no longer has a reputation for not really knowing that much or being able to do that much on cybersecurity. But you know, it's not like I I came into this role and snapped my fingers and things change. Uh, the prior team under Suzanne Spalding did a, did a great job of building a sound foundation. Uh, making the right, uh, at least budget priorities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, we have a long, long way to go. I mean, you know, DHS, the cyber budget, my cyber budget at DHS being one of the five mission areas is 1% of the department's budget. Right. Almost, it's actually less than 1%, uh, but, you know, who's, who's uh, squabbling <laughs> over quarters and the, and the sofa cushions. Um, we have a long way to go, I think. Uh, it, it, but it, in part because... The threat landscape is has evolved so rapidly, and it's and it's continues to shift and change. And it's you know, we need to be much more nimble as government. We need to be much more uh, uh, agile in our procurement processes. But at the same time, we need to look at industry and say, all right, let's be clear, industry, you guys are always going to be faster than this. Always have probably better tooling. What do we have that's uniquely governmental? In part, that's. Um, that's intelligence, infusion of intelligence with open source uh, information. But the other piece is the ability to you know, not be uh, committed to profit centers yeah. in that I can look for market failures, whether within sectors or across sectors. And if there's no business model for it, doesn't matter. I can do that. There's right. a there's a Which value. Election, elections in it. would be a good example because right. the, the, the secretary of state budgets for yeah. elections are tiny. Right. But but the key and this is what I've really hit hard on is that um, what what we do at NPPD and hopefully CISA soon is going to be stakeholder informed mm-hmm. in in based on value. So I everything I do uh, should be for the most part, you know, 90 percent driven by what stakeholders need from me will align capabilities against that requirement base. And then we have to deliver value. Now we do, you know, have to, we're able to share information, threat information, and we can do other things based on threat information. But I think part of what you're hearing from industry right now is that we are taking a prioritized risk management approach to solving a, a pretty thorny problem. Uh, now it's early; the returns are still pretty small, uh, but you know from Small things grow big things. So one of the things that I would have thought that uh, industry would be interested in is DHS playing a role that uh, moderates and coordinates all the regulatory agencies, all of whom now believe that cybersecurity is an important part of their Mm -hmm. their mission. Uh, And they may have come aboard late, but they have authority to regulate. Uh, uh, And the question is, are they going to use that authority to regulate to start 
splintering the effort and uh, uh, demanding things that uh, sound good but aren't crucial to security or uh, just ask for things that uh, uh, made headlines in their industry. Uh, and DHS has an ability to say these are the things that are most important. You need yeah. to focus on those. And I would have thought that industry from time to time would want to ha- be able to come to DHS and say, you know, my regulator doesn't understand this. So I think I think you touch on a important part, and it was a key element of Executive Order thirteen six three six back in two thousand fourteen, um, where uh, regulatory harmonization. You know, do we do we have the regulatory authorities we need for cybersecurity, uh, and where we do have it, are we focused appro- appropriately? And the, the the returns from those discussions in the last administration were like, yeah, yeah, we're good, everything's uh, I think appropriately tailored, and it probably was at the time. Um, you know, there are challenges working with independent regulators. They, you know, the independent uh, agencies have, you know, don't necessarily have to listen to whether it's the White House. I, frankly, or, they should have to. On, on this, this is national security. They I, don't get to say, oh, but I have my own constituents. Yeah. So I think we, you know, Senator uh, Heidkamp mentioned when I was going through the confirmation process, she said, you know, I hope you have sharp elbows. And I think this is one of those areas where we need to be a little bit, not a little bit mm-hmm. better, but a lot better coordinated. Uh, and it's I think it's in part up to my uh, my agency working with uh, NIST and others to say, look, here's the baseline. These are the things that we just have to do. Right. A lot of the area um, for improvement that I see is education and awareness. And I know people are going to hear that roll their eyes like, oh, enough awareness and education. But, you know, even when we talk about SEC and their examiners, I need to do a better job of engaging the examiners mm-hmm. and educating them on my capabilities and my team's abilities so that when they go out to the field and they meet with uh, their stakeholders, they can say, look, you got a problem here. Here's who you can work with at DHS right. to go address that issue. And so there, there's there's there are opportunities for engagement excellence, as I see it, <laughs> all yeah. across the, the, the interagency. Absolutely. And you, you just did a uh uh, MOU with the, the FDA. Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, and it always struck me as uh, I watched that uh, to some degree that uh, it was perfectly clear that the FDA was desperately dependent on DHS and the ICS cert for right. an understanding of the risks of implants. Uh, and I, it's sort of nice to see them not insisting on their autonomy on this, but wanting to work with you on security issues. And I think part of this, so it's it's funny, the um, relationship with FDA, we've always had a really good technical relationship with FDA, but at the leadership levels, it, it you know, just last hurricane season working through some of the Puerto Rico issues and the pharmaceutical manufacturing base down there developed a pretty close relationship with Mm. Commissioner Gottlieb. Good. And so as we say, hey, how do we build on this uh, partnership? What can we do next? And one of his areas of interest was cybersecurity and said, all right, let's go. Let's go see how we can we can collaborate. And, you know, the fruits of that relationship are you know, bearing fruit right now. Well, uh, congratulations, because I, 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 I couldn't be worse than when I was there. <laughs> I, I wanted to make sure that everybody had um, uh, antibiotics and um, an emergency kit of antibiotics yep. in the event of an anthrax attack. Uh, and the FDA said, you can't give that out without a prescription from a doctor. And, and if you tell people they should go out and get it without a prescription, that's a felony and we could have you indicted. They didn't quite say they would have me indicted. But they can cause I yeah. so I if you if you pick the wrong side uh, they can be very prickly indeed. So let me ask in closing because uh, I know you you've got uh, another child on the way. Number yes. five. this is this is terrific. Uh, um, and heading off to a doctor's appointment. Uh, what's coming up that DHS is going to do either on elections or more broadly on cybersecurity issues that listeners should be watching for? So I think the um, the president's uh, the national cyber strategy gives a pretty good outlook on where yes. we're going in terms of both federal cybersecurity. So we do see uh, opportunities for greater centralization of services. Uh, my team uh, will be providing SOC as a service, Security right. Operations Center as a service, instant response capabilities, but also really you know, bottoming out on what agencies are responsible for and where they can look to DHS for additional help. So that's federal. On the, on the critical infrastructure space, really moving into supply chain. So the mm-hmm. Bloomberg article from yep. a couple of weeks ago, fascinating stuff. Yes. Um, uh, but, uh, I think you've, you've said 
you haven't seen any uh, validation of that. And even as recently as last week, uh, DNI Coates was out there and yeah. again speaking to the issue. It's but it's not the veracity of the story that but the plausibility. It's the plausibility is fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and and this is an area that I'm I you know I look at this as probably the greatest opportunity space across the federal government right now in terms of supply chain security. Go re, you know the yeah. the miter uh, deliver uncompromised reports. Just a great piece of work. Um, and it, it, there's gonna there needs to be a lot uh, a, a the federal government through the procurement process has an incredible amount of leverage right and uh, we need to figure out how to optimize that leverage to get better security down through the system whether it's in the defense industrial base or just the broader ICT supply chain or you know just our weapons system as a more yeah. recent GAO report suggested we have a real problem there so I uh, uh, so, so, so supply chain and then industrial control systems and you know you take it down the next level it's a uh, in, internet of things just I look the, the the surface area the attack surface area is exploding in front of our very eyes and uh, exploding in a figurative way not a literal of course uh, but uh, you know, there's uh, there's a there's a lot of room for DHS to to provide value and to uh, into the market. Sounds good. I'm I, I'm very excited uh, uh, from the little beginnings that we had uh, in 2007 2008. Uh, uh, there's been a consistent pattern through the Obama administration and into the Trump administration of DHS taking on more and doing more. Uh, and uh, you're part of that tradition, uh, uh, Chris Krebs. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Stuart. Okay. Uh, thanks to uh, Maury Schenk and Jamil Jaffer as well for joining me. This has been episode 236 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, don't forget to send us suggestions for guest interviewees. We'll give you a highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug. Uh, value less than $20, Chris. I'll give you one uh, if you can accept it. Uh, and send the suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, I have started uh, – Posting the stories I think we'll cover in the week uh, uh, on Twitter at Stuart Baker, uh, so you can look for them there. Be sure to rate the show. I've just discovered that we actually have two different uh, uh, um, instantiations of the show that uh, Apple has recognized, and they have – Different inter different reviews and different ratings. Um, uh, so uh, uh, please go in and rate them both. Uh, and uh, I'm gonna. I have now found a few entertainingly abusive um, uh, reviews. So I will be reading those uh, uh, sometime in the next couple of shows. Uh, and tune in. Uh, we have a panel coming up of CISOs, including the deputy CISO of DHS. I uh, uh, and I'm gonna have a conversation with Depayan Ghosh, uh, who's the co-author of a report on digital deceit and the uh, efforts that uh, foreign governments and sometimes uh, domestic players have made to shape our national uh, uh, conversation in unhappy ways uh, and what he thinks should be done about it. Uh, um, Lori Paul and Christy Jorge are our producers. Doug Pickett is our audio engineer. Michael Bieber is our intern. I'm Stuart Baker, your host. Please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. <laughs>